This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Inglis, number one in its field. Stephen King surprised many in the Victorian racing industry when he decided to quit the saddle in 2016 after almost 30 years as a professional jockey. He's not one for keeping records and he really doesn't know how many career winners he's ridden, but he's pretty certain around 54 of them have been at Group 1 level. He reached the pinnacle of his brilliant career in 1991 when he combined with the powerful mare Let's Elope to win the Caulfield Melbourne Cup double and he celebrated his 22nd birthday on Melbourne Cup Day of that year. His father was a jockey, so was his maternal grandfather, but it took Steve a long time to decide that he wanted to follow in their footsteps. He didn't even like his first taste of stable life and he quickly dismissed any thought of becoming a jockey. But a little later he thought he'd give it another go and he was lucky enough to gain an apprenticeship with a master trainer, John Marr. Steve King is on the line to talk to us on the podcast and it's great to catch up. Thanks for your time, Steve. Morning, John. You've uh, been retired just on two years now and you're working full-time for Lloyd Williams at his famous Macedon Lodge training operation. And I hear you're riding work six mornings a week and loving it. Yeah, no, still very much involved, John. Um, at the time when I decided it was time to sort of move on, uh, I was I was riding work for Lloyd, and um, basically, uh, you know, Lloyd gave me an opportunity to sort of walk away from being a jockey and, and join his stable full time and I thought that was mm. a perfect opportunity for me to say, you know, it's time to time to move on. Two of your co track work riders are Steve Arnold and Anthony Darmanin. And it was Steve Arnold who told me that you might ride only three or four horses a morning at Macedon, but you can be on them for a long time. Yeah, obviously Lloyd's got a lot of European horses up there and um you know, he's kept that sort of training, training as far as uh, spent a lot of time on a lot of walking, and um, mm. you know, it suits the property. The property's uh, established now, and and it suits those sorts of horses to go out and uh, walk the property and do a lot of uh, uh, sort of a lot of fitness work without actually getting over their neck. Mm. Track work is only a part of your job. You're also a member of the ground staff. What are your duties in that regard? Oh, no, pretty much full on, John. I get involved and get the hands dirty. Um, I'm not frightened to do that. You know, being, mm. I've got the farm just around the corner, so pretty much, uh, you know, I'm, I'm right in the thick of it. So uh, I, I love it. I enjoy it. I'm a pretty much a hands-on person. So uh, mm. I love getting involved and uh, getting everything done and uh, all the way from the ground, all the way up to the top. Mm. Well, unlike Steve Arnold, who's got a long drive every day to Mount Macedon, as you said, you live just around the corner, about 10 minutes. Yeah, that's correct. You know, I've, I bought this farm, uh, oh, geez, 25 years ago now, and mm. I was sort of looking for a different lifestyle. I was I was bored up in the city, but I just felt at the time I just needed to get out of Melbourne and just focus on me riding, and, and the farm allowed me to do that. I sort of just got away from everything, and, uh, mm. you know, I love being on the farm. It's nice and peaceful and quiet and you know I just love being on the land. That property Steve comprises 115 acres and you've done a lot of things with it over the 20 years. Yeah look I, I initially set it up for adjustment with the horses um, basically in the back of my mind I just thought I'd better set something up just in case uh, 
the day came where I couldn't ride. Mm. And it's actually set up for adjustment for horses, even though I haven't, I'm not doing that at the moment. It's, uh, the bones are there as far as being able to do that whenever I decide to do it. But mm. um, I've had cattle along the way and sheep and so forth and just to keep the place tidy. But uh, at the moment, as I said, I'm working full-time at Lloyd's and haven't got really the time to put into the adjustment side of it. No. I'm intrigued by the name of the property, Chardon Vale. Yeah, Chardon Vale, yeah. We sat down and decided what we'd call it and we came to the decision that my wife likes a bit of Chardonnay and <laughs> because we're in a valley, uh, you know, the name, that would fit the name as far as Chardon Vale, yeah. Yeah, well, Leanne loves a shardy. I don't mind one myself, Steve. Tell her I'll buy her one. First time we run into you in Melbourne, and it'll be a good one. Oh, that'll be great, John. Looking forward to it. <laughs> okay. Well, let's go back to the beginning, mate. You grew up at Parkdale uh, in Melbourne between Mentone and Morty Alec. Your dad, Albie, was a successful jockey, and he's still going strong at age 80, and he closely follows the career of your son, Lachlan. Yeah, no, he loves his racing. Dad, he's always uh, he's always loved it. He's very passionate about horse racing. Um, came from a place called Parkdale, which at the time we had Epson just in between us. So um, that's where I was sort of established at initially at Epson and very racing, mm. very racing community down there at the time. And um, yeah, Dad, Dad loved watching uh, obviously me ride, and now it's now it's Lachlan. So uh, you know, he's always ringing me up, sort of saying, you know, how lucky he's doing. And, what is yeah. you doing right and wrong and so forth, so it's mm. great. Your maternal grandfather was the late Jim Tully. Now, he was also a jockey, and in his day, a very respected track work rider. I think a lot of trainers loved his assessment of horses in track work. Yeah, that's correct. He uh, had a very good name as far as a track work rider slash jockey, and, uh, you know, he had a... He, he, Actually, he worked on a couple of decent horses. One was called um, Carbon Copy. So, mm, um, mm. you know, he, um, he was obviously very respected and uh, he passed away at 95, but he, he, was, he was a good old guy. Yeah. For younger people who might be curious about Carbon Copy, in the late 1940s, he won an AJC Derby, he won a Cox Plate, he won a Sydney Cup and 11 other races and his regular jockey was Scobie Breezley. Yeah, well, him and Scobie were very good mates, actually, and uh, every time I ran into Scobie, when he was around, Scobie would always, always ask about Pop and sort of say, oh, how's he going and that, so they were obviously very good friends, so, uh, yeah, great connection. You were in year nine at school when you decided on doing some work experience at the stables of Ian Saunders. You lasted two days. Yeah, no, I didn't enjoy it. I went there and... Uh, Got dropped off at Ian Saunders, and back then I had a, a bluestone uh, stable that was very uneven, and I was asked to uh, sweep the stable out, and uh, which I did at the best of my ability, but when I got to the other end, the foreman said to me, look, not good enough, go back and do it again. So I thought, uh, nah, this is not for me. I think I'll, uh, I'll give this racing caper away. I didn't last very long. <laughs> well, early in year 10, you decided to give it another crack, and... This was probably because your brother Graham, by this stage, was riding at Albury. I think that might have fired you up a bit. Yeah, I went up to Albury to watch him ride, and uh, I sat in the jocks room and helped him do his gear that day, and hmm. there's something inside me just gave me a bit of a feel for it and a bit of a buzz, and uh, 
I remember going home from there, and uh, that was probably the you know the big turnaround for me as far as uh, let's mm. give it another crack because there was something in that jockey's room that day that just gave me the feel you know it's time to give it one more shot. I was mm. a little bit older in the head too, which probably helped yeah. uh, a bit more mature, and probably ready to have a crack at it. Well, Graham only had a handful of rides, Steve, and he won one race at a place called Penshurst in Victoria. And you tell me that photo still hangs on the wall at his place. Yeah, no, he's pretty proud of that photo. Uh, uh, no, he was, he was wrapped to get that win, but after he rode that winner, he said to, to mum and dad, he said, nah, he said, it's not for me. He said, mm. I think I might move on. So uh, to his credit, he just decided, no, nah, he didn't want to be a jockey. And, um, mm. and it was up to me then, because by that stage, I was sort of pretty much signed on to, to John Maher. See, to become a professional jockey... Uh, and to do it properly and to apply yourself correctly, there are a lot of sacrifices, Steve. It, it's simply not everybody's cup of tea, is it? No, nah, that's correct. I mean, you know, I think I joined John's at the end of year 10 and 16 years of age, and, and John was pretty pretty strict. He was he was a bit of a... Uh, he was a tough boss. I mean, he, he expected the best from you, so pretty much my life changed as soon as I signed on, and... And as far as uh, John at 16, you pretty much, you miss your teenage years because mm. you're pretty full on as far as work goes. And, uh, you know, I had, I had no life outside of racing at that stage. You've got a sister, Debbie, but she's never been into racing. No, nah, she had no involvement in racing whatsoever. She's just, um, she loves the horses, but she never, she was never involved in racing. She's um, involved uh, in other things. Do you remember your very first meeting with John Maher? My first meeting as far as meeting John? Yeah, first time you actually yep. met him personally, shook hands with him. Yeah, no, I, I, my father took me down to uh, his stables down in Epson and we sat down in his, I think it was his special room at that stage, uh, private room, and um, and John sat opposite me and he you know, asked me a few questions, why I want to be a jockey and so forth, and then turned around and said to me, look, you know, you've got the breeding, mate. You've got the blood going through you. <laughs> um, you know, go back mm. to school. I want you to go back to school and finish off year 10. Mm. And then at that stage, and then come back to me after year 10 and we'll see what happens. So, um, mm. yeah, that was the first meeting I had with Johnny. He was just talking about breeding, which went completely over my head. I had no idea what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a remarkable bloke, John Maher. He's a great horseman and a great professional. I remember going out to his stables at Epsom in 1985, two or three days before the Melbourne Cup, in which he was saddling up, oh, what a nuisance for Lloyd Williams. Yep. And I think that was the first time I'd met him personally, and I was very, very conscious of the fact that he was uh, a tense sort of a bloke. You could tell that he, his mind was on the job every minute, and uh, he struck me as really, at the time, Steve, being a bundle of nerves. Yeah, he was pretty uh, professional. I mean, he was very serious, um, which you can understand that time was very competitive, no different than what it is today. But John was trying to make a name for himself. And, uh, you know, he had the backing of a you know, very high-profile owner like Lloyd Williams. So, um, mm. yeah, he was pretty pretty focused and he expected the best from everybody once you help once you once you're involved with John, he expected the best from you. So uh, very strict. Well, your first uh, race ride came along. In fact, you had two rides on that particular program. Where was that? Was that at Mornington? 
Yeah, it was. It was at Moynton. Um, I was I was very, you know, John made sure that I was prepared for my first race day. I think I had about 100 jump outs and, uh, you know, he, he made sure that when I went to the races, I was pretty much, you know, capable of doing, doing the job. So um, I had two rides at Moynton. Uh, the first one actually... It actually bled on me the first the first race ride, and I um I pulled up and I thought it was me that was bleeding because uh, <laughs> I had blood all, blood all over my silks, and uh, yeah, unfortunately the horse had a bit of a bleed, uh, yeah. went ordinary, but uh, yeah, a bit of a shock to the system once I pulled up. Mm. And the second one, the second one was a little fat little little mare that was very uh, slow. She uh, she just basically folded them around, but she was a nice kind little horse and uh, yeah. great experience for me to have my first couple of rides at. Well, here's a date uh, that will have pride of place somewhere in your scrapbook. 21st of February, 1987. You went to a Geelong meeting. You rode a horse called My Regard for John Ma, and up you bobbed. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, John, uh, he's, he got this horse ready for me. Um, really quiet old horse, basically... Uh, the horse did the job for me. When I look at the replay, it's quite embarrassing because uh, <laughs> I did nothing on the horse. I just sat there. I thought I was punching out like Mick Dittman, but <laughs> when I watched the replay, I was actually doing nothing. Um, and actually, the second guy, the, the bloke that actually ran second, he dropped his whip. The, the whip went up in the air and landed on the horse's neck. By the time he mm. caught the whip, the winning post comes. So yeah. all the gods were smiling upon me that day. Uh, but no, the horse basically did the job for me. Mm. Uh, I just sat there and punched it out as hard as I could, but... As I said, once I looked at the replay, I wasn't even moving. Yeah, you were a mere passenger. <laughs> That's about it. That was about <laughs> it. John Maher forbade his apprentices to carry a whip for a certain number of rides. That obviously was a good thing. Yeah, look, there's actually, um, I'm not sure about today, but there's no rule saying that you have to hit the horse. So uh, basically, John, um, yeah, he was. He just wanted me to learn how to steer him and... Uh, you know, focus on doing the right thing as far as getting the horse balanced. So uh, he was in no rush for me to pull the stick on the horses. And, um, mm. yeah, for the first sort of X amount of races, I, I wasn't even allowed to pull the stick on the horse until I got me uh, balance right. He also insisted on your outriding your country claim before you even thought about coming to town. Uh, you needed 60 wins in those days. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think I got to about 58 winners in the provincial before I got my first winner in town, so uh, pretty much outrode me claim. He just wanted me, when I, when I went to the city, he wanted me to be ready, and um, and I was too. I, I think back now that when I went to the, went to town, I'd already uh, rode against some of the best jockeys in the provincial, so I was ready to go to town and cope with the pressure of uh, city riding. Mm. We'll see what that first Metropolitan winner was after we clear this break on the podcast. Back with Steve King in just a moment. 2019 English Australian Broodmare and Weanling Sale and the Chairman's Sale were an overwhelming success. The Chairman's Sale ended with a clearance rate of 92% and an average of over $427,000, a record for a Southern Hemisphere sale. On a memorable evening at Riverside, four mares sold for a million or more two of them selling for two million or more and they were Maastricht Dam of Loving Gabby and dual Group 1 winning mare Srikandi, while a further seven sold for $500,000 or more. Lot 1 
a trapeze artist breeding right for next season, made $105,000 for injured jockey Ty Angland, who was present at the sale with his wife Erin. The two days of select and general race fillies and broodmares averaged over $42,000 with a clearance rate of 76%. Select weanlings averaged $36,000 with an 85% clearance. The four-day sale grossed almost $40 million. You'll find the full sales results and information on upcoming sales on inglis.com.au. My guest is Stephen King, former champion jockey who decided to quit the saddle just on two years ago. Your first city winner was a horse called Zone. It was an open handicap at Sandown, January 1988. It was one of Lloyd Williams who had four in the race. I think you started about 66 to 1. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm not sure whether I was supposed to be on the winner or not that day, but um, <laughs> certainly got the job done anyway. Uh, yeah, nobody yeah, said no, anything. <laughs> no, no one said nothing to me, so uh, I suppose yeah. it'd be the right thing. But um, yeah, no, I was on the rank outside of that day and um, came down. I think I came through the middle of the field actually and uh, hit the front. And uh, yeah, mm. sure enough, got the got the biggies at, at big odds. So uh, hopefully they were happy. Well, I'm still working for Lloyd, so uh, he must have been. Yeah. Well, John Maher supplied your first Group 1 winner. It was in the South Australian Oaks, Philly's name, Gamine. Yeah, that's correct. Um, You know, I was very lucky because I went through my apprenticeship with John, and obviously John, when I first went to John's, John's, I didn't even know how to ride a horse. So, uh, you know, that that, uh, relationship grew, and... Before I knew it, I was I was getting probably eighty percent of the rides from John's stable, and he was starting to really build up to a, a, one of the power stables as far as back in those days. Um, you know, he was in the top top three or four in the city, and he was leading training in the provincial. So we were starting to get some good stock, and you know, he gave me an opportunity to ride a horse called Gamine in, in, in the Oaks in uh, Adelaide, and uh, yeah, no, it was a great thrill, John. Absolutely fantastic. Well, when the developers took over the Epsom Racing Precinct, John Maher made the move to Flemington and his team numbers jumped, I think you were telling me, from 30 to 70. Yeah, certainly um, it was a big move. I suppose at the time it was a bit of a worry because they'd spent their whole time at Epsom. But, yeah, we moved to Flemington and then all of a sudden our numbers grew and, and the quality of horses improved and uh, some you know, big, bigger clients got involved. So... Uh, you know, we're on the big stage now at Flemington. That was very exciting because, uh, you know, Flemington was the headquarters of racing at that stage and still is today. So um, that was fantastic to move to Flemington. And he moved into those very historic stables at Flemington, didn't he? Chiquita Lodge, yeah. Mm. Uh, fantastic stable still there today. And I think it's Heritage, actually. Uh, yeah. Uh, absolutely beautiful stable. John had it pristine. And, uh, no, it was, it was a great spot to be. It was, it was a great experience for for me too, because coming from Parkdale, uh, finally moving over to Flemington, it was opening the eyes up. I think Bert Bryant, Steve, the late Bert Bryant, used the expression in many of his calls at Flemington, past Chiquita Lodge, and the, yeah, was, the fame of that place grew as a result of Bert Bryant's race calls. Yeah, definitely, and I think even from a jockey's point of view, uh, a lot of jockeys have used Chiquita Lodge as a, as a, a marker when you're in certain races, to sort of be in the right position at Chiquita Lodge. So um, mm. that's both sides. 
and the old clock tower, of course, it's another famous landmark at Flemington. Is it true that trainers would uh, insist that young jockeys don't move until they saw the clock tower? Yeah, that's true because, as you know, a lot of young jockeys get itchy fingers and uh, they take off too early. So, um, you know, they, they used to say, just wait till the clock tower before you let it go. And uh, mm. you know, normally if, you're, uh, if you hit the front or around that stage, you're pretty much home. Mm. You must have been riding a massive amount of work at Flemington, not only for John Maher, but you were now coming under the notice of so many other good trainers. Yeah, no, it was it was great. I mean, look, John had a fairly big team, and obviously we'd get our stable horses done first, and then at the time you had obviously all the big big tra- trainers out like Bart and so forth. So uh, yeah, yeah, getting a lot of opportunities started to open up, and mm. it was it was great. You had a great association with Leon Corstens, who was then a highly valued Melbourne foreman for Bart Cummings in the early 1990s. And it was Leon who first drew your attention to a big gangly mare from New Zealand called Let's Elope. Yes, that's correct. Um, I think the time, you know, I was there most mornings, slow mornings and, and so forth, and I was working pretty much six, six days a week, so... Uh, Leon, Leon himself was a bit of a workaholic, and I think he knows the work ethic I was putting in at the track. So mm. he came over to me and said, "Have you got a ride in the um, Turnbull Stakes?" Which obviously I had no ride at, at that stage, and mm. I was still a uh, small profile. Really, I had many opportunities as far as that was concerned. And he said, "Look, I've got this, uh, I've got this little mare, or big mare at the time, uh, mm. <laughs> going to run the Turnbull Stakes. Um, I'll put your honour." Mm. So. Um, I said, oh, that'd be fantastic. I was wrapped just to get the opportunity to ride in the Turnbull Stakes. And, mm. and um, he said, I'm going to put blinkers on her and, uh, you know, we'll see how we go, eh? And um, I said, yep, mm. no problem. And, and as we know, um, on, the, on the Saturday, she ran the Turnbull blinkers on and he said, basically, just sit her out the back and bide your time and let's pull her out the top of the straight and see what she can do. And yeah. obviously, you know what she did in the Turnbull. She, um, oh, came out and sprinted straight past him. Amazing. Just going back before she came to Melbourne uh, to review her early career, she was trained in New Zealand by Dave O'Sullivan. She'd won a maiden and a Group 3 at Awapunis. That surprised me a bit that she'd actually won a Group 3 race. But then she came to Bart in the September of that year. She had three runs without winning, and I think Shane Dye rode her in one of them at Caulfield, and he wasn't too impressed. Well, she didn't have a wet ground, and uh, that was that was the thing. I mean, when she got on wet, she was just she was hopeless on wet ground, and mm. uh, I think basically, yeah, and he jumped off and went went in a different direction, and, and that opened up the opportunity for someone to ride her, and her, her form sort of read that way. So, uh, yeah, I suppose uh, that they threw the threw the rider around, but no one grabbed, snapped her up, and then obviously mm. uh, Leon gave me the opportunity. Mm. Right, well, you've already mentioned the Turnbull Stakes. Then came the Caulfield Cup. She had 48.5. You probably didn't ride her the prettiest race, did you, in that in that cup, but you had a plan by the same token. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I, I just, you know, we were both learning. I mean, she was learning, and obviously I hadn't had much success as far as Group 1 races are concerned, but mm. I sat down and thought, Look, I was lucky enough to get the ride in the first place with no weight in her back. I'm sure they would have offered it to a few other jocks and obviously knocked it back or so forth. But mm. um, I thought to myself, well, look, I've got to win on... Every time I ride this, I've got to try and win on her to keep the ride because 
so many high-profile riders around the time. Mm. And I thought to myself, the only way I'm going to win this is I'm going to have to make a, mid, a mid-race move and put her somewhere in the race. Uh, being Caulfield, it's going to be hard for her to pick him up. So mm. I made a move between sort of the probably the 700 and the 400 to put her sort of two or three lengths behind him on top of the straight. Mm. And, uh, yeah, then she did the rest. But, yeah, certainly I had to make a mid-race move to put her into the race. Otherwise, I think if I sat back, I don't think she would have won it. Mm, good point. Well, she had 48 and a half kilos and you were able to manage that. I know you were only 21 at the time, but really overall, right through your great career, you were pretty blessed with the weight, weren't you? Yeah, no, I was. I was able to pick up a lot of weight opportunities uh, right throughout my career and uh, you know, that certainly helped uh, click those Group 1 winners over because there's probably half of them that were probably on a light weight. Mm. Bart Cummings often ran his cup horses in the McKinnon Stakes. He made a point of it, and Let's Elope was one of them. What do you remember of that McKinnon win? Oh, look, that win, I think, from my point of view, uh, when, I, when I was on her, you know, that was probably one of the best wins as far as how easy she did it. She, um, It was just like a working gallop. She, she just went around, and uh, basically I never really let her off the steel. She... Um, you know, she cruised around and went past and accelerated. Certainly wasn't at her top and had a pretty soft race, which went into the Melbourne Cup. That's what most trainers wanted back in those days. Perfect, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a perfect perfect preparation run for the Melbourne Cup. Mm. All right, well, that ends part one of our interview with champion jockey Steve King. We'll be back with part two shortly in which we'll talk about that dominant Melbourne Cup win of 1991 and other highlights of his great career. The 2019 English-Australian Broodmare and Weanling Sale and the Chairman's Sale were an overwhelming success. The Chairman's Sale ended with a clearance rate of 92% and an average of over $427,000, a record for a Southern Hemisphere sale. On a memorable evening at Riverside, four mares sold for a million or more two of them selling for two million or more, and they were Maastricht, Dam of Loving Gabby, and dual Group 1 winning mayor, Srikandi, while a further seven sold for $500,000 or more. Lot 1, a trapeze artist breeding right for next season, made $105,000 for injured jockey Ty Angland, who was present at the sale with his wife Erin. The two days of select and general race fillies and brood mares averaged over $42,000 with a clearance rate of 76%. Select weanlings averaged $36,000 with an 85% clearance. The four-day sale grossed almost $40 million. You'll find the full sales results and information on upcoming sales on inglis.com.au.